Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. There is a segment that's done by a late night uh, television show host, James Corden, that's kind of uh, caught people's attention. It's called uh, Carpool Karaoke. Have you guys seen that? Who watches Carpool Karaoke? Nobody in the entire room. That's great. Okay. That's how it's going to go today. All right. I'll just stare back at you. Okay, Carpool Karaoke. Who's seen it? All right. It's pretty fun, right? If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. It's really funny and... um, uh, it's caught on, and you know, there's, I've seen several of them, and what I've noticed over the last, um, <clears throat> you know, several months is my interest has sort of faded on that particular segment. It was funny at first, and you know, it was like kind of getting bored with it. Well, last night, Lisa was watching one with Michael Buble, and um, she was like, you got to watch this, you got to watch this, and I'm sitting there like trying to watch the World Series on my phone, and uh, <laughs> peeking over, and okay, that's cool, and you know, the only thing I really took away from that was I didn't realize he sang a lot of the songs he sang. I didn't know it was Michael Buble that sang that song. That's great. Okay. And um, I just kept watching, you know, in the World Series. And um, then somebody else came on that made me stop watching the World Series to turn it off and watch the entire 20-minute episode or segment of uh, Carpool Karaoke. And that person was Paul McCartney. Paul McCartney came on and I just stopped. And I watched, and uh, James Corden was there, and he did a, an episode with Paul McCartney, and it was really neat. They took him back to um, the place where he grew up as a child and wrote some of his first songs. And uh, what was interesting about watching um, not just me stop everything I'm doing to watch Paul McCartney, but also wherever they went, there was, not, there was all kinds of people stopping to stare at Paul McCartney. They were interested in him. They were drawn to him. And with all due respect to people like Adam Levine and Britney Spears who have also done this, it's just not the same as Paul McCartney. There's something about greatness that just kind of captures your attention. You know, it it feels a little bit different. There's a little more gravitas to it. You know, you pause and you say, okay, this one's serious because greatness kind of captures us. We're drawn to it. Greatness doesn't just capture our attention, though. It can also consume our life. There's a desire that seems very natural to us because it actually is natural to us. The purest form and its best form, this desire in us to be great is very godly and normal. To take whatever we're doing, whatever's in front of us, and want to do it at the very best level is a really good thing, something godly in us. But just like everything else in the world because of sin, the definition of greatness and our desire to be great has become distorted. And so we come to our text this morning, and it's all about the desire to be great. It's all about this churning in us to want to be seen and known and remembered as great. And Jesus makes us face the ultimate reality of what greatness really is. And so we see James and John and their mother come, and they literally bow down before Jesus and they ask to secure their greatness in his kingdom. 
And in the midst of that moment, Jesus has something important to tell, not just James and John or the 12, but all of us today. The first place I want to start is this, and that is with the craving we have for greatness, this desire we have for greatness. And as I've mentioned before, there's a sort of natural flow to wanting to do the very best you can do and to even be the very best. Sin, no doubt, has got its reach into that desire of human beings like it's done into every desire. It distorts and twists our desire to where we take greatness and really misunderstand it. But this desire for greatness, you notice Jesus doesn't condemn them. He doesn't say, why are you asking for this? He actually wants to turn their attention to something else here in just a moment. We'll see. But this craving and this desire we have for greatness is something that's in us. There's a couple things we need to know about our desire for greatness, and yes, even the kind that gets a little bit distorted. The first one is this. Our desire for greatness will show up wherever we go. Now remember, James and John were business owners before this. They were fishermen running their father's fishing enterprise. And I never really had conversations with James and John before they became followers of Jesus, but my guess is that they wanted to do a good job at being fishermen. It was within them. It was the desire for them to do that. And as they turned to follow Jesus, that desire, that craving for greatness still remains. In fact, it is inside of every single one of the apostles. If you look back in chapter 18 and verse 1 of Matthew, Matthew, we see a story there where where the disciples are arguing amongst themselves, saying, who of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? You see, they're hearing Jesus talk a lot about this coming kingdom and that he will bring about this new kingdom. And what they're jockeying for is positioned to be seen as the greatest one in the kingdom with him. It shows up wherever they are. Just because they became disciples of Jesus doesn't mean this uh, desire flushed itself out. They turn in chapter 19, we see that there are some young children, some parents and children wanting to come to Jesus, and this desire for greatness has sort of made the disciples push these children away, saying, we're too busy, we've got too many important things to do, we're great, and this is not worth our time. The disciples, I'm sure, in chapter 19, verse 28 of Matthew, held on to, fixed their attention to Jesus' promise, in the new kingdom, you will have thrones, he said. They were zeroed in on it. And what he's saying is wherever you go, whatever you do, this desire for greatness will be strong in us. And we've got to be careful about it. The second thing he wants us to know is this, that our desire for greatness shows up everywhere, but it also shows up in whoever we're with. So in Mark's account, we see James and John being the ones who speak to Jesus. And then in Matthew's account, we see that it's actually their mom doing it, you know. And so don't get it twisted thinking that this is one of those like mom embarrassing their kids moment like James and John have no desire to be great they don't want to sit on the right hand or the left hand of Jesus that their mom is just dragging them by the ear and making them do this and that's not how this is going this is all contrived amongst them this hunger to be most important to achieve if they've turned their attention and given up the fishing business to now following Jesus and he's saying hey a kingdom is coming what they're trying to lock down is to be the most important with Jesus in that kingdom if we're going to get a throne I don't want to be second to the end I want to be on the right hand and on the left hand and Jesus I'm sorry James and John and their mom are all involved in this you see James and John their mother she loves them 
She wants what's best for them. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, let's be the best follower of Jesus. Let's be the highest rated follower of Jesus. And people in your life who care about you will also be thinking about how they can help you become great. This is natural for us. But the problem is this. Our concept of greatness is distorted. It's messed up. Which means that our pursuit of greatness and the desire of other people for us to be great can also, because of sin, become unhealthy. So we've got to be very careful with how we think about it. That's what Jesus says. So his second part is the concept of greatness. So we see that we have this craving, but we also need to understand how we view greatness. Jesus has some pushback for James and John and their mother in their request. His concern is twofold. The first one is this, that the concept of greatness can be misled. It can really be directed in the wrong way. You notice Jesus pushes back there. If you look down in verse um, 22, Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking for. When she came and said, can my sons sit on your right hand and on your left hand? Before Jesus said, hey, you're not allowed to ask for that. Or what are you talking about? You, you don't want that. He's saying, are you sure you know what you want? Are you sure you understand? Do you know what you're asking for? You see, what I find is that most of us want is the benefit that comes with being great, you know, like wealth or power, attention, maybe people's affirmation and praise. But rarely do we want is the actual effort it takes to be great. And Jesus, we're going to see here in just a moment, is going to mention what it costs to be great. It's going to cost them an awful lot to be great. And he's saying, are you sure you know what you're asking for? Because to be great in my kingdom, there's going to be an incredible cost. Greatness can also be not just misled, but misunderstood. And so after the other ten find out that James and John and their mother had asked for the right hand and the left hand to be seated, they get a little bit mad. Now, they're not offended because they know that they all should be servants and careful about this. They're offended probably because they didn't come up with that idea to ask their mom to help them get the job of being first and second in line. And so they're angry about it. And Jesus takes this moment to call all of them together, all 12. And he says, listen, guys, come here. Greatness is not what you think it is. You've got a concept, an understanding of greatness that is fed by the world, not fed by me. And you've got to understand that. Look in verse 25. When he calls them together, it says this. He said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That means from their position of authority, press down upon other people to force them to do things that they want them to do. And their great ones exercise authority over them. You see, guys, greatness is what he's saying is not in just what you see around you. It's not the way the world defines it. The world defines greatness as the position you hold and the power you have. So you are considered to be great if you are first in line, if you are preeminent, if you have all the power, all the wealth, if you make all the decisions, you're the one who's seen as great. That's how the world defines it. But Jesus says that's not where greatness really is from God's perspective. That's not really what greatness is. So you and I achieving, becoming CEO of our company, or becoming a head coach of a team, or the captain, or first chair of your band, or champion, or whatever you're trying to do, doing those things doesn't automatically make you great in the eyes of God. 
Becoming the wealthiest person in your friend group doesn't make you great in the eyes of God. You may be seen as great amongst your friends, but not in the eyes of God. Being the person with the house that's worth the most doesn't make you great. Being the mom amongst all your friends who feeds all organic and doesn't let a kid watch YouTube, right? That's how we judge if we're doing a good job at mom, right? Okay. That doesn't make you great in the eyes of God. Having the most education, being able to travel to the most places, accomplishing the most things, having the most followers is not really in the eyes of God what makes you great. You see, God doesn't say, okay, now that you've accomplished something, I think you're great. It's different. His greatness is actually found in our willingness to pay the price. See, Jesus is going to tell us about the cost of greatness here in this passage. If you go down to verse 26, he's going to tell you. He says, it shall not be so among you. That's not how I measure greatness. So your urging, your desire, your longing to be great in its purest form is good, but your concept of what greatness is is distorted. It's messed up. And so you've got to refigure, you've got to reformat what it means to be great and then channel all that energy and all that attention towards that kind of greatness. True greatness in the eyes of God is found in how you're willing to pay the price, the cost of it. And it's going to cost you some things. Jesus says in verse 26, It shall not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant. Becoming great in the eyes of God will cost you, first of all, your perspective. Meaning this, you're going to have to think about greatness differently. And not just the concept of greatness, but you're going to have to think about yourself differently. You notice the examples we mentioned before, like accomplishing something in your career or accumulating a certain amount of wealth or having a certain amount of influence or attention that's how we think about That's our perspective of greatness. And Jesus says the first cost of being great is that you're going to have to think about greatness from a different perspective. If you want to be great, you're going to have to see yourself as a servant. That's where greatness comes from. You're going to have to see yourself differently. See yourself as someone who's willing to be first, someone who's willing to go last, someone who's willing to care for others, someone who's willing to give not just accumulate or get. It's going to cost you a different perspective. Jesus also says it's going to cost you your path. You're going to have to go a different way. Now the best translation of verse 26 goes like this. It shall not be so among you. Read it with me. Whoever would be great among you must become your servant. Become. Now, verse 27, let's keep it going. Here's the best translation of verse 27. And whoever would be first among you, that means highest rank, the highest ranking person, whoever would be that must become your slave. Now, the point in emphasizing this word difference is this point, that it's a process, it's a journey to learn to become a servant. You must become this, meaning it takes intentional training, meaning you've got to practice at it. You've got to give effort to this, that you're not going to hear this sermon today and say, you know what, I've thought about greatness from this perspective, but I see that Jesus says being great means being a servant, and now you intellectually get it, and tomorrow you're just going to be perfect at it. It's not going to work that way. If you agree today with the Scripture that being great means being willing to serve, you're going to have to practice tomorrow. 
and practice Tuesday and Wednesday and next week and the week after that. It's going to take a lifetime of practicing serving other people to learn how to be this. So if you want to be the greatest parent, you're going to have to wake up and say, how do I serve these children? Which might mean asking, what do they need, not just what do I want to get rid of, right? I'm tired of hearing them cry, so I just want to give them this so I can get over it. You're going to ask, what do they really need? Serve them. If you want to be the greatest spouse, you're going to have to wake up tomorrow and say, what does my spouse actually need right now? And am I willing to stop what I'm doing to provide that person what they need? Am I willing to die to what I want to give them what they need? Am I willing to do that? If you want to be the greatest employee at your place of work tomorrow, you're going to have to wake up and go into work and say, who and how can I serve without any desire or need for recognition or promotion? How can I just give and care? If you want to be the greatest Christian, the greatest Christian, you've got to wake up tomorrow and say, I am going to outserve everybody in this place. It's the holiest competition in this world I've ever heard of. How are we going to outserve each other, outdo each other in giving honor to other people? How are we going to become people who are willing to give up our higher seat for the lower seat and say, I'm willing to do whatever needs to be done for the gospel of Jesus Christ to go forth? I don't care if I get recognition. I don't care if I'm honored for it. I don't care if somebody else gets the credit. I don't care if I take the blame. I'm willing to serve. And when you get your perspective around that, and your pathway changes saying, I'm willing to train to be a servant, will find what greatness really is. The last thing greatness will cost you is your purpose. But it's going to give you a purpose. You notice Jesus roots our serving in his own life, which is a fundamental truth in Christianity, by the way, that your entire existence is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ who he was, what he did, how he lived. Everything about us stems from him. And he says there in verse 28, even as, so you must become a servant just like the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And here's the very special word. He gave his life as a ransom for many. That's the essence of what he did in serving ransom is literally just a word that was used to say what is the price that you must pay to release somebody from their bondage of slavery so if somebody's held in slavery maybe they're indebted to a banker or maybe they've done some wrong and they need to be released from that burden what is the price that has to be paid to release people from that jesus christ said my life i give as a ransom to release people from the penalty punishment shame and guilt of sin i've come to release people from that my life is a ransom and he says i want you to serve just like that now nobody in this room is actually the ransom price for sin None of you have the ability to give your life and then all of a sudden everybody else is released from their penalty of sin. We're not perfect. We can't do that. But here's maybe a more specific question. In what ways in your life are people bound to things? Maybe bitterness and they can't forgive. Maybe indebtedness and they don't know how to steward their money. Maybe frustration and they don't know how to build relationships. What sort of bondage do you see around you in your life? and people that you have a relationship with, and people that are close to you, where do you see the bondage? And are you willing to serve people to release them? 
by the gospel of Jesus Christ from things that are holding them back, hurting them? Are you willing to be a servant? Jesus says, where you give yourself, you must be willing to give all of yourself as a servant to release people from the bondage of sin so that they could be set free. And if you and I become people who are willing to do this, we will become great in the kingdom. That's exactly what we were called to be. That's exactly what we were designed to be. Jesus Christ is the epitome of a person who had everything at his disposal. The riches of heaven, the power, the authority, and he, the Bible says, emptied himself. That means that he gave up possessing all of the power that he had, all the wealth that he had, all the prestige that he had. He willingly gave that up to take on the role of servant, to free us from the bonds of sin so that we could be renewed in a relationship with God and restored to the purpose we were designed to live. You and I were designed and called to be servants of God. And in doing that, we become 